Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick and this is episode number 127 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. How is everybody doing? My guest this week is Ben Winship. What a great guy. And right off the bat, I want to let you know, because we didn't talk about it during the episode, but he's got a brand new digital download only release on his website, benwinship.com. And there's a link to it at mandolinsofbeer.com and in this description of the podcast. But it's only $7.50 for the download. It's 11 songs. It's called Mandolin Tales. And it's a compilation of some of his favorite mandolin recordings that he's done, old and new. And it's great. I just got myself a copy as well. So go and get it right from Ben. Again, $7.50. That's a great deal. Support a great artist. All right. So we'll get to that in just a minute. Man, did I mention Elderly Instruments is now a sponsor of the podcast? Elderly Instruments is the most trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted instruments. We all know how cool it is to be able to support the locally owned mom and pop business instead of supporting the big box stores. With Elderly Instruments, you're getting a place that's been family owned since 1972. It's located in Lansing, Michigan, that they ship worldwide. I bought my first mandolin there. However, shopping at Elderly Instruments doesn't mean a compromise in quality. They have a vast selection of acoustic and electric guitars, banjos, ukuleles, mandolins, and all the accessories and books you might need. They have a world-renowned repair shop that sets up all the instruments, and perhaps, most importantly, the down-to-earth and knowledgeable sales staff that can help you with anything you may need from advice on high-end vintage instruments right down to what picks you should buy. And they're always happy to help. They're only a phone call and internet search away. Go to elderly.com or call them at 517-372-7880. That part there about them setting up the instruments um, is is crucial. I, I remember getting my first one and, you know, right before I bought it, they took it back to the shop there and fine-tuned it and couldn't have been nicer about it and didn't charge, didn't charge a penny extra. So that was fantastic. Peghead Nation with Peghead Nation's video courses and mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. Peghead Nation's got a great lineup of mandolin instructors from everything from beginning mandolin to theory for mandolin. You got last week's guest, Mike Compton, teaching Monroe-style mandolin, Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, who I'm going to be interviewing again here pretty quickly, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Feibish, and Chad Manning. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now. Get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. By the way, you can just easily download those uh notation and tabs right to your iPad if that's what you use as well. It goes right to iBooks or whatever PDF thing you have. It's perfect. makes it so easy to uh, have all your tabs and stuff with you when you're traveling around. Northfield Mandolins. Let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. And of course, their Instagram is always incredible. I want to thank Pava Mandolins. Pava dedicated to building for the impassioned player. They're right there in Austin, Texas. Uh, during this episode, Ben has a great story about building his very first mandolin, and you'll hear all about it. Uh, and he maybe been able to avoid some of those some of those issues he had uh, when building this mandolin if he would have had Roger Simonoff's The Ultimate Bluegrass Mandolin Construction Manual now in its fourth edition. And it's only $44.95. Uh, it's loaded. It's got more than 300 color photos it's been updated it's got his tap tuning techniques building the fretboard installing frets pearl inlay neck joints all of it it's a stellar instrument building manual by the heralded luthier and author roger Simonoff. who knows you could be the next steve gilchrist or paul duff or 
or Haydn or Fletcher Brock or Lawrence Smart or Lloyd Lore. Never know till you try. All right, everybody, let's get into this episode with Ben. Uh, fantastic conversation. I hope to go to Idaho and meet him in person someday. What a what a nice guy. Great recordings again. Be sure to check out that new digital download at his website, benwinship.com. And if you want to know what songs are playing in this episode, just go to mandolinsofbeer.com or look in the uh, information on wherever you're listening to this podcast. will be in the links there. All right. Cheers, everybody. Have yourselves a great week. All right, well, man, it is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Ben Winship. Ben, how you doing? I'm doing great, Daniel. Thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me. Man, thank you so much for uh, for doing it. It was it was funny the way that your email came in, just giving me some suggestions for for builders and some guests. I had literally just been on your website. Um, listening to some tunes again and just uh, looking for information. And then I got an email from you. I'm like, oh, well, this is perfect timing because <laughs> you're on my list of people to contact. So, All right. yeah, this is great, man. Well, I'm, I'm honored and tickled. Thanks. Oh, thanks so much. So what's been what's been going on with you? Um, I know you used to do the music camp that is not going to be taking place, but that is that that camp's been going on for a few years. Yeah, the, the Targi music camp. Yeah. Is that, yeah. Um, yeah, Grand Targi's is a um, ski resort that's sort of in my uh, relative backyard here in the in the Tetons. Um, I live in uh, Idaho, right on the Wyoming border, and um, the there's been a festival going on at uh, Grand Targi for thirty plus years, um, and a band I was in back at the time of its inception uh called loose ties was was a pretty big part of um the initial days of that festival and um anyway yeah i've been sort of involved in in the festivals ever since the beginning but back in um i believe it was 2000 um we decided to um start a bluegrass camp and uh that kind of evolved into um not really just bluegrass but um you know all kinds of string band music and uh i ran that for about five years and then uh handed it off to a, a buddy named thomas sneed who's been been running it since then but um unfortunately it's uh it's on a hiatus at the moment oh man that's a bummer that, that was that kind of at the forefront of some of the the bigger camps i mean now there's Boy, I don't even know how many camps. I know Mandolin Cafe posts that map of the United States with the camps coming up for the year. And it's, <laughs> it's you know, there's so many of them. Were there a lot of them back in, in 2000? Yeah, um, I, I should, I think I have the, I have the date right. Um, I think probably I meant 2010. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I might have heard, yeah. I, you know, I might have heard it wrong too one decade or another but um <laughs> yeah uh the um the festival decided it wanted to do something to kind of up its game uh when its 20th anniversary came around and uh the guy who's been the um festival organizer is a pretty good friend of mine and um he knew that i'd taught at quite a few camps and and asked me if um if i was up for taking on the challenge so he and he and i kind of put it together and, and um i would coordinate with him on who would teach um because it was often um 
it kind of the camp had its wagon hitched to the the festival so we would often um get performers who he wanted to have perform at the festival um to teach at the camp as well and uh so we kind of worked through yeah it was always a fun kind of challenge to figure out who i i mean i taught a lot of camps myself around and kind of there's so many amazing um performers and musicians um who aren't actually that great at teaching <laughs> sure yeah i was just <laughs> gonna there's say of, <laughs> there's conversely there's a lot of great great teachers who might not be the flashiest players in the world but they're the ones that you really want who can explain something to um to a struggling student so um but yeah that was one of the main challenges of running the camp was kind of trying to put together a menu of of uh instructors who i felt could could uh create a, a good vibe and also you know impart as much uh knowledge as possible and more fun to be around yeah, yeah. How, how long would the uh camp run uh i ran it for five years and then um thomas ran it for another five i mean another 10 and um then that's you know the pandemic has kind of put the brakes on it for last summer and unfortunately this summer as well yeah i mean uh, how many days like like would it run just oh oh the, the festival it time run. yeah it, it started out as a uh it's basically four days yeah yeah the, it, the week preceding the festival which was always in in mid-august we did some cool things to kind of take advantage of of uh our location and um like i said is that at a ski resort so um Usually on the last day of the camp, uh, we would get uh, the entire uh, community of students and instructors to uh, either take the chairlift or, or hike to the top of the mountain. And we have this giant jam session on on the top of the mountain overlooking the Tetons. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, it was a blast. We try to come up with as many high in a mountain types of songs that we could all sit <laughs> <Yeah>. together. <laughs> When I, when I was running the camp, it was it was quite a bit smaller. It was, you know, 30, 40 students. Um, but um, the last several years, it's been, you know, over 100. And then when you add all the instructors, it's a pretty big group. So it used to be like one giant jam on top of the mountain. And now it's gotten to be so many people that it's sort of splintered into different um, different groups. But uh, yeah, super, super fun way to wrap things up. And then the other thing that we would do is um, there was always a camp song during the that was taught um, during the course of the week, um, we decide ahead of time and each class would work on, you know, the guitar solo and the mandolin solo, etc. And the um, singing class would work on the, the lead singing and the harmonies and, and put the whole thing together. And then we'd get together as a camp and uh rehearse it a few times and then we would uh all get up on the stage of the festival usually on the, the first night of the festival and have a big rousing rendition of of uh whatever song of the year it was that oh, was a wow. blast that's cool yeah. man that's a cool yeah. way to approach was, it too yeah it was a good it was a you know a chance for instructing um you know focus and building community and also a way to promote the camp because um people in the audience would be like whoa maybe i could go to camp someday and learn how to do that and uh and also it 
you know, the whole stage fright thing is a, uh, is a, an experiment in, in human behavior. And, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's obviously strength in numbers when you get that many people all, uh, doing something like that together. But, um, <laughs> it's always, uh, a good way to support one another and, and cheer each other on. Oh man, that's so cool. And you also have you have those books out from uh, Mel Bay, the American Mandolin Method, which I remember. Yep. I used to work for Barnes and Noble for for years before I started doing music full time. And I, I remember when those books, uh, well, the first one came in. There's two, right? Two of them. Yeah, yeah, yep, volume one. Yeah, uh, they were actually carried in Barnes and Noble, like in 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 all the stores. And I'm like, oh, sweet man, those are both great books. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. So those um, those came about. Um, my good buddy Brian Wickland is a um, amazing fiddle player from um the twin cities area minnesota and um he's a he's one of these guys who's not only an amazing fiddle player but um a really gifted teacher and um he as a kid grew up playing the uh studying the suzuki method and when he got into playing bluegrass and and string band music um he realized that there was a, a, a niche for um, an instruction method that was based on the same um, series of uh, like same pedagogy as a um, as the Suzuki method. Um, so you'd be learning the same positions and bow patterns um, on the fiddle as um, as you would if, if you were coming up through the Suzuki method. So. There's, you know, millions of young kids out there who who have studied the Suzuki method, and this was a way they could just kind of step sideways into uh, learning, um, you know, American string band music, approaching it the same way. And so he's he's done um, really well with with those books, um, the American fiddle method, and as in you know enlisted Suzuki teachers all over the country. Um, to adapt that approach to um to their teaching and uh, he brian had the idea that we should create a, a companion mandolin version of that so it's it's really many of the same tunes that are in the fiddle books and and the idea is that you could teach um mandolin to you know whatever some families little girl is learning how to play the fiddle and maybe her little brother wants to learn how to play the mandolin. So, uh, they've got stuff they can play together, same versions. And, um, yeah, yeah. Neat idea. It's, it's well put together too. I mean, I buy, I, I buy so many mandolin books. It's, I mean, <laughs> I'm looking at, you know, but you know, I also find it a way to like, kind of support, you know, like, Oh, get that. I mean, um, but, right. and, and some of them are put together well and some of them aren't. And that right. one's that one's put together really yeah. well. It's logical, which you yeah. know sometimes a lot of things you get to you know, page two. You're like, okay, and you turn to page three, and you're like, what? How did we get to this? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a Frank exactly. Zappa song. <laughs> What's going on? Yeah. So, how did you how did you start playing mandolin? Where did you grow up initially? Um, I grew up um, in a little cabin in the suburbs of Boston. No. Uh, <laughs> I, I did grow up back east in, in outside of Boston, and um, uh, yeah, I didn't follow the normal path of like, you know, playing electric guitar and Led Zeppelin and 
death metal and then all of a sudden decided that the mandolin was cool or, <laughs> or or i didn't grow up in a in a family where um everyone played string band music and um it was uh, my mom had a rule that everyone had to learn how to play the piano and if um if you pulled that off for three years then she would get us lessons on an instrument of our choosing um and i chose the banjo um when i was uh, i don't know seventh grade i think and um took lessons from a guy who was hardcore i i mean i think i first started playing kind of pete seeger stuff out of the pete seeger book um but um got into um playing hardcore scrubs banjo um which kind of introduced me to the you know the lexicon but um i kind of veered off into playing guitar and bass for a number of years and um in college i i was studying forestry and um during this but i was also kind of wondering if i maybe wanted to build instruments i just loved i, I had a shop growing up and i built a guitar out of a book at one point uh, dreadnought and during one summer of college i think after my freshman year i took a uh, guitar building course in vermont and um kind of wanted to see if what it would be like to be a, a luthier and um at the same time as i was taking that course i had a little bit of extra time in the evenings and uh the guy who was teaching the course suggested maybe i could build a mandolin in my free time and uh, I didn't really know much about the mandolin, but it was a fun challenge as a woodworking project, you know, involving carving the tops and stuff, which was a little different than, than building a guitar. Um, anyway, yeah, I built this little weird looking mandolin that didn't have a <laughs> scroll, it had like a horn hanging off where the scroll would be, and um, had a neck like a, uh, you know, baseball bat. Just, <laughs> enormous uh but but you know it worked it sounded good and uh i went back to college that fall and it was right around that time that um the first uh grisman quintet album came out and i got completely smitten by the that music and the sound of the mandolin and um i mean i was already pretty familiar with with bluegrass and and um both you know kind of old and in the way stuff and and traditional stuff but um but the sound of of uh grisman's record kind of really awakened me to how cool the mandolin was and um and i all of a sudden had this mandolin and i was like well i should probably learn how to play it and um <laughs> and being that i was a, a college student anything to me was was more fun than studying so <laughs> right <laughs> um, i spent a lot of my free time uh the next couple of years in college playing mandolin and um i i was coined the term uh pro productive procrastination <laughs> that's so great <laughs> instead of instead of doing homework i was kind of learning how to play blackberry blossom and uh yeah i didn't uh I was well i was really motivated but um uh, i wouldn't say i was very good i i, I learned a, a g scale and i pretty much played the same solo on every song um 
<laughs> for the first year or two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Descending G scale pattern from Blackberry Blossom. That was kind of like, I put that in wherever I could. Oh, that's great. And, yeah. Got a lot of mileage out of it. I think I could probably play it faster than, than I, I can now. But uh, <laughs> anyway, that was, uh, that was where it started. And uh, I ended up finishing forestry school and worked as a forester for a little while but um but also had this you know music bug and i'd i'd um i was actually lucky in in college um when i was playing crappy uh g-scale solo on every uh mandolin solo i uh one of my roommates was a really amazing guitar player from georgia a guy named rich brotherton who um He's been uh, Robert O'Keefe's uh, lead guitar player for the last oh, wow. yeah. 20 some odd years. Great player, but, man. I've seen him a couple yeah, times. He, he, yeah, he's he, he's got it going on. And he plays great bluegrass and, and Irish music as well as everything else. But um, we had a little band called the Pete Dawson Band in, in uh, college. And um, so that was a good initial influence for me. Um, and... I had a couple bands in Vermont that played during the summer, um, during the college years. We had a band called the Homegrown Review. And, um, but yeah, so I sort of had a, a taste of what, what playing music for a living was like on a real casual scale. But um, after a couple of years of pursuing what I thought was going to be a career in forestry, I, I, my sister, who's an artist, my older sister, said you know you might always regret it if you never try playing music and i realized that it was kind of a young man's sport and um that i might always regret it if i didn't uh take a crack at it so i moved to out here to uh to the tetons in uh, 1986 and um spent a winter skiing and formed a band with um with two guys I knew from back east who I'd played with before. Um, we started a band called Loose Ties. Digging a hole with a long dull spade I keep coming across these roots I made Roots I buried underground Keep pulling me back when I turn around. The roots are weathered and the roots and, are uh, we ended up um, really getting after it for, for about 10 years and uh, toured all over and, you know, got to play um, all over the States and, you know, Telluride and some of the, some of the bigger festivals. And um, we were, uh, we were really motivated right at the kind of at the front end, the, the music scene in, in the Rockies was, um, me tell you, ride was sort of the, and still is, you know, the cream of the crop, but, um, there was a, it was kind of a, um, an open market in a lot of ways. Um, it, I think the attitude towards music out West was a little more, uh, I don't want to say, open-minded but people weren't um it wasn't part of their culture the way it is back in the southeast so um people 
probably less um, committed to the idea that you know bluegrass needs to be super fast and in the key of B and um, <laughs> uh, played and sung a certain way. And uh, so, and because those of us who I was playing with were, were not really steeped in that tradition. And um, the whole idea of loose ties was we were sort of loosely tied to, to the traditions of bluegrass. So we would do uh, Stevie Wonder songs and, sting song and um we were kind of you know really influenced by um new grass and tony trishka's skyline were big big at the time and and hot rise too um so um yeah that was uh that was what that band was all about that's awesome uh, you i i hear like a tim o'brien influence in 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 your stuff would i be safe in saying that you would yeah i mean um and i mean it as a huge compliment because i love tim o'brien <laughs> so yeah I, I i i i love it he's a great guy he used he actually used to live here um back in the day and then and then you know we obviously looked up to um to those guys immensely and um you know eventually became friends with those guys but um and charles Sattel, um Kind of helped me mix and record i think our second album and then tim produced our final record um so um yeah it was great to to be able to work with him and were you in did you have a band called brother mule yes yeah brother mule was was uh that was post post loose ties that was um with that fellow brian wicklin that i mentioned who who wrote the um american fiddle method books um brian and i uh got to know each other i think teaching at um augusta or, or one of the camps um maybe it was sore fingers no i think it was augusta and um and i had known so it was a trio with brian and eric Turin, who's a really amazing bass player um he was in a in a great uh bluegrass band called open road for a while um and eric and i both played in tony Furtado's band for a while um when um he was doing a you know acoustic slash electric thing with drums and stuff and um eric was pretty pretty full-time member of that band and i i would sub in and out but anyway we became good buddies and, and then uh eric and brian and i found ourselves all teaching together and um had this idea of trying to start a, a trio with um uh, without a guitar and um <laughs> uh which uh, was was really fun um we would do kind of equal parts um bluegrass and swing and and irish stuff and, and a lot of stuff that we uh we would write um and um 
it was yeah the trio felt like a really good um musical combination um i i love playing in trios and duos um as well um i ended up i ended up playing in, in both duos and trios i ended up playing octave mandolin quite a lot so that sort of allows me to do what i know how to do on the mandolin but also you know provide more of the kind of mid-range guitar sound and in the and in the in brother mule with fiddle and bass the octave mandolin kind of sits nicely in, in the middle yeah, and the album jawbone's really cool man that's a yeah. fun listen that was uh that was our, our second record and um yeah that was a joy to make and and to play it sounds like it <laughs> it's, it's, it's like a fun album yeah and speaking of fun albums too man uh, just like just a few years ago you had acorns and tool shed same time i did put them out at the same time yeah they i i've been you know over the years just part of a lot of collaborative bands and recordings um and i did one solo record um boy what year was that um i think it was like 1997 Since then, I, I'd sort of always thought about making another solo record, um, but it was always the songs I was writing would end up on a uh, Brother Mule record or a Canes River record. Or um, my main thing now is a, is a duo with with John Lowell called the Growling Old Men. started thinking I, I should put together an, an, another solo record and um, started making a list of tunes and kind of dabbling in recording them, but, but really procrastinating. And uh, I think um, sometime around 2018, I said, you know, I, I got to quit talking about this and actually do it. Um, and um, when I started working on the stuff, I realized it, kind of fell into two camps there was one collection of songs that really felt sort of like more old-time string band music and the other collection of tunes more 
eclectic and and all over the map and um so that record became one called Toolshed, and the old-timey record became uh, Acorns. And they were recorded around the same time and, you know, released at the same time, And um, which is probably a dumb idea from uh, any kind of marketing <laughs> standpoint. <laughs> but but uh, it seems like no one's in the, in the CD making business to make money anymore anyway. So... Uh, it was an artistic uh pursuit and um yeah it was fun i got my my son sam's a graphic designer and i had him uh do all the artwork and you know try to make them look the same and different at the at the same time yeah they're really cool i love that the whole the, the whole vibe of both albums the artwork the um the groups of the the musicians that you have on both albums are are amazing and just the feel and the vibe are both uh, there it's great i mean it's uh, i think we were talking before we started recording especially like acorns for whatever i mean that just listening to that album just paints a picture of you know of out west to me the, you know the whole time all of it, it's it's really great nice well um I, I appreciate that 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 record was was really fun to make that one was was more of a um the spirit of of uh, performing music um collectively uh it was a, mostly the main group of the of players on that um were, were uh, a guy named forrest gibson playing guitar and a great fiddle player from alaska named scotty meyer and a uh, great banjo player um from toronto named chris cool and i knew all those guys independently independently from being out in the world, but, but they didn't know each other. Um, and, uh, well, Scotty and Forrest knew each other, but, um, neither of them had met Chris before. And, um, I sort I knew it was going to be, uh, a good hang socially. And, um, and I was pretty sure everyone would hit it off musically, but, um, yeah, they came, came to my place for about a week and we, uh, sat around and, and, uh, learned the tunes and ate and drank and had a had a hell of a good time and, and um it was really really fun to just perform that music um you know sitting around in a circle um and so that that was sort of the the spirit of of that um and that that kind of music lends itself much better to um being performed uh live versus you know kind of an overdub more sterile approach um the other record toolshed was, was i, I kind of described that as a laboratory experiment <laughs> whereby uh, i kind of employed all the chops i've learned over the years working in the studio and and um um a lot more remote recording as part of that um uh, a friend of mine who lives in london you know did a lot of the uh, horn parts and and uh, is a great uh, tuba player from uh, New Orleans who who recorded you know at his own place and sent me stuff um, and uh, yeah and I got some some cool guests uh, on there as well um, Stanton Moore who's an amazing drummer for Galactic was um, 
coming through town and I got him to come into the studio and as well as, uh, Ivan Neville, um, oh, wow. who was, who was in town, uh, for a concert and, uh, brought my remote rig over to, uh, to a hotel room where he was staying and <laughs> I got him to sing, uh, a song called what's the what's the matter with the well which is about the deep water horizon uh catastrophe years ago run here mama run here quick there's a hole in the ocean and it's coming out quick what's the matter with the well what's the matter with the well But um, yeah, so that that record was a lot more about uh, um, finding different people that I liked and, and uh, trying to create uh, the kinds of sounds that I wouldn't be able to accomplish um, with players that live right here. I guess would be the main. <laughs> thing i was able to work around yeah yeah stamp more I, I i played drums for most of my life until i started playing mandolin and stanton moore was probably my favorite drummer for a few years straight there where i don't think i listened to anything but like his his solo albums and his trio album that emphasis on the parenthesis album is just i, I still listen to it a couple times a year man <laughs> he's great yeah yeah well that, that's cool that you uh have that have that background it's it's uh it's a good thing as a mandolin player to understand um what uh what drummers do and what they can do and what their role is and and uh yeah yeah i, I find it, a, a lot of times when i'm doing like even like exercises like warming up i think of like paradiddles and picking sometimes like but instead of like right left right left right right left right left left like you know i'll try to you know i'll pick g d g g DG, DD, you know, like little things like that, just trying to play mind games and just free my <laughs> right hand up from my brain a little bit. Right. That's a cool idea. Yeah. If it's effective or not, I'm not positive. <laughs> but it feels like it is when I'm sitting down, so I guess that's all I need to motivate myself. I'm looking forward to hearing your, your paradiddle someday. <laughs> cool, man. <laughs> When did you start building up a studio? Because you've been doing that now for, is it almost 25 years, it looks like? Yeah, I think it probably has. Um, I built a little um, kind of guest cabin in my backyard um, years ago, which was, we live in a really small house, and um, I wanted to have a um, kind of a, an office and place for guests to stay. So I built this tiny little cabin and had a fold-out couch in it and a desk and a place for me to kind of work outside of the house and I think around the time um I made my first record I acquired a ADAT machine and um learned how to use it I'd, I'd always loved being in the studio when when bands I was in was recording and um um just was always fascinated by the process and and kind of the magic of it and um and i still am i mean the, the idea that you can sit in a room and play something or sing something into a microphone and it goes through this wire and it ends up uh 
you know, well, it used to end up on tape and now it ends up on the computer, <laughs> but then it ends up on a, I don't know. It's still, to me, it's still, it's, it's magical. And, um, anyway, I, uh, so I always loved the process. And, and when I made my first record, I was like, well, I, I think I know enough to do some of this on my own. If I, if I get the equipment and, um, eventually, you know, people I knew had knew that I had a little bit of equipment and would ask me to record stuff for them. And, gradually the little guest room you know the couch went away and racks of outboard gear started <laughs> building up on the walls and then uh i've added onto the building two or three times and and uh so yeah it's no no longer a uh, a guest room unless someone wants to sleep on the floor but um <laughs> it's uh you know it's kind of i mean it's not giant it's it's still i'd say very much a home studio but there's a you know there's a big decent sized tracking room and there's a couple isolation rooms and um and a control room and um you know collection of really nice microphones and and uh um and i'm the the uh the engineer um who knows just enough to really get in trouble <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I feel like I've, I've made a lot of, um, really good sounding recordings here for other people. And, um, I give most of the credit to the, to the players. Um, you know, if I think I'm good at creating a, a good vibe and making people feel comfortable and trying to figure out what the best approach is going to be, because there's so many different ways to go about recording and and you know some people are understandably nervous about either their budget or their ability to perform or both and, and uh, i almost see my job as as a you know a counselor almost more than anything but, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah the the uh it's it's a, it's fun working with folks and, and trying to figure out how to how to get them to do their best. How do you go about that? Um, Cause I remember like the first time I ever went to a real recording studio, you know, and it was a band we had played these songs hundreds of times and we're like, man, we'll, well, here's it's this much an hour. We'll be able to knock this out. We could probably do basic tracks, get done. We'll be done in a day. Right. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how do you go about like somebody who's maybe coming in for the first time or, or something like that and get them, you know, in the, in the space to, to create and not be clouded with the stress that can fill your head yeah. you know, outside the performance? Um, you know, I, I think a lot of it's just about sort of reading, reading the room, reading the person and uh, trying to, I, I often try to play with them just to, um diffuse the situation uh, <laughs> and, uh, even if um and a lot of times when people um come to record at my place they sort of know what i do and they know that i'm a you know i'm a mandolin player i can also play bass and um you know rudimentary guitar and banjo and sing parts and stuff so i don't know i'd say half the projects people come here for they might ask me to record a little bit with them. Um, so, but 
um, you know, when someone shows up, we'll often, you know, sit around and have a cup of coffee and, you know, tell some bad jokes and, um, <laughs> you know, and maybe try to play a little bit with them and show them that, Hey, yeah, look, I, I suck too. So, um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, it's not, uh, you're not, you're not under a, a microscope and, and also just, you know, trying to let them know that it, you know, doesn't have to be perfect the, the minute they start recording, um, that, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not too worried about judging them or, or, um, yeah, I mean, it's just so, it's so different from person to person, but, um, no, that's a great way though. I think that's really, uh, the, the personnel that's, uh, if, if somebody wants to go into a studio, it could be really daunting and it's a lot, I found it, it was a lot different than what I expected, you know, right. going in, you know, and yeah. it was, it was, and, but it was also, I was just in love with the whole process you know once yeah. you once you dig in and and see what's going on and you know just it's like you said it's it's kind of like a magic every time you know it's you're taking something especially if you have something like like yourself like who's uh interactive with them it's kind of amazing to to hear what a song can become yeah from something that starts with you know let's just say like a three chord little song and a, and a melody and then like yo you know it'd be cool here and then next thing you know this there's this beautiful thing it's like a seed is growing into this thing and might not have yeah. happened you know yeah when when you see when you see someone when the lights go off for somebody like that that's that's a really rewarding part of the thing um yeah i think um just backing up a second like like we have this image of uh you know you see photos of the beatles recording in the early days and the the studio engineers were you know guys walking around with, with uh lab coats on and <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, you know you can always picture like a stethoscope around their neck and, and, uh, um, so yeah, but I remember, um, early on when, uh, recording with, um, with Charles Sautel, who was the, the guitar player in Hot Rise. And, and, uh, it's like, oh man, this guy, he's such a nice guy and he's, he's funny and, and warm and he's on my team. He wants me to, he wants me to do well. He, he's not a guy in a lab coat who's, uh, you know, uh, looking at his watch every second. Um, that's, you know, kind of that, that spirit of, um, we're in here to, to make something good. And, um, I, I think that was sort of one of my early influences on, you know, what it could and should be like, but, uh, yeah. And I, I think over the years I've discovered that, um, the, uh, people i enjoy working with the most are um people who have very little experience and are just coming into it completely green and are kind of you know awed by what can happen um and i also love working with people um who are just incredibly good <laughs> all i have to do is put the microphone in the place and they're gonna do the rest i i uh I used to work with, a lot with this amazing guitar player named Mike Dowling, um, who used to live around here and moved away, but, um, amazing, amazing guitarist in, in all styles. And, and, uh, um, he was one of, one of those guys that everything he touched would, would turn to gold. And, um, he actually, we recorded a bunch track here that he won a, won a Grammy for it, which was oh, pretty cool. Get out of here. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. But, uh, 
it was a uh, it was a uh, compilation record of uh, Henry Mancini songs called Pink Guitar. <laughs> had a whole bunch of different guitar players on it but but mike's track was recorded here but but yeah but the, the thing that's always the most challenging for me are, are the people who uh who are kind of okay um but understand but think that the process of recording is going to make them better than they are right um, and um you know just assume that um all of a sudden through the magic of the studio or the computer that their timing is going to get perfect or their singing is going to get <laughs> perfectly on key and right. they're you know there are some incredibly powerful tools in the in the computer that can do some amazing stuff but um uh i think they i view those as opportunities for something really good to become amazing but maybe not something okay to become great right. <laughs> <laughs> right even more so if they're doing it acoustic style music yeah. or string music that's it's yeah it's tough to fix that and if you're just doing european dance tracks <laughs> tracks around all day long throw all sorts of weird stuff on it but yeah when you're trying to do something real sounding it, it kind of needs to be real <laughs> yeah yeah Tell me about it. Speaking yeah. of great players, you have a, I, and I don't know the story, but I'd love to hear it, is you were a judge when Thiele won the mandolin competition at Winfield. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I would love yeah. to hear that. <laughs> I, used to, I used to make a pilgrimage to um, to Winfield quite often to, uh, yeah, hear the music and compete a little bit myself. And, and then eventually bands I was in got invited to play there. Um, I, I don't know. I played there five or six times, maybe more. Um, it was always so different um, to go down to, to Kansas and oh the, man, the the, uh, the culture of of late night picking at that place is. Um, I'm used to living in the mountains, it getting cold at night, and and uh, boy, I just remember going down there and you know the smell of the uh, campfires and. Uh, just warm nights and you could stay up and play all night there. It was fun memories of that place. But, um, but anyway, yeah, in, um, I think I judged the mandolin contest a couple times and, um, the year that, uh, Chris won, I think it was 93. And, um, when you're judging, you're, uh, in a kind of this nondescript metal building, um, sitting around a, you know, in plastic chairs and listening to this little speaker, you keep, you, you're totally isolated and they're giving you a pizza and Coke <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, you have to listen to, uh, whatever Kentucky mandolin or rawhide or whatever the tune of the year was, you know, 40 times in a row, um, <laughs> and, and try to maintain your focus. But, um, anyway um there's always some just incredible players and and 
I don't know. The whole idea of judging music to me is a little bit odd. Uh, it's not like you can really win at music, but um, <laughs> anyway, um, that's another story. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the guy that played the most amazing that year was, was uh, you know, I think it was pretty obvious to everyone who was judging and, uh, but you don't know who any of them are. They don't, announce any names or anything when you're back in that room judging so i decided to i wanted to go out and see who these guys were and um they announced the winners in this in one of the sort of barns is uh where they uh have one of the stages and um this giant kind of metal building with a bunch of people in the audience and uh this announcer guy is out on a microphone and then on the side of the stage, there's a sort of a one of those cloth partition things. You know, there's two poles and a uh, some fabric strung between them, so you can't see who's behind it. Um, but it didn't go all the way to the floor. It was uh, it went to about a, within about a foot of the floor. All right. <laughs> so um, you could see the feet of whoever was standing behind this thing, and. Um, and I'm standing there and they announce the third place winner and they come out from behind this um, partition and get their award. And then they announce the second place winner. And as soon as they announce the second place winner, I saw these feet jumping up and down behind <laughs> in the little space underneath the cloth. And uh, it's like, just, just up and down. Like, and, and it's like, whoa, those are little feet. That's like, that's like, that's a kid. And uh, I was like, holy crap who could that be and then and then of course chris walks out and and takes home the first place trophy but uh i just remember seeing those little feet jumping up and down uh, wow it was uh I, I i i think he i can't remember if he'd already put out his first record by then i was i was certainly aware of him but uh it was uh that was a good good moment in in mandolin history yeah, for sure. That's amazing. And just the fact that it's, I mean, he's hes competing against all, it's all ages competition. It's not like youth and then teens and it's, right. it's everybody. Yep. Yep. Cool. Do you happen to remember what he played that, that was like, uh, that, that you really know, it's funny. I, I, I ran into him, uh, two or three years ago, he played a solo concert here in Jackson hole. And, uh, I went backstage and told him that story and he, and I said, I don't remember what you played. And he goes, oh, I do. And uh, uh, um, oh, yeah, I, I'm not gonna remember. But but if you ask him, he'll remember. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. Think, uh, I think, someday I think he maybe. remembers everything. I think he I bet, remembers yeah. everything. <laughs> I, I can believe it. Editor's note: Ben emailed me back later that evening and um, told me the song was "Pale Rider" by Emery Lester. All right, back to the podcast. I remember one year. Um, at the target camp um stuart duncan was was here teaching and uh, um he gave a little concert at lunchtime just a solo performance and uh he said i, I we have a we have a goat rodeo concert coming up uh in a week or two and I, I need to rehearse this stuff so um if you guys don't mind i'm just gonna do that for an hour <laughs> we all sat there and he played his parts just you know jaw-dropping incredible and and then he mentioned yeah we're all we're all witchetting trying to remember this stuff because it's really complicated but but chris won't need to do that he he, he remembers <laughs> exactly how it was 
was played and <laughs> in there. Oh my god, that's wild. Yeah, he's yeah. an anomaly. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, your mandolin gear because you got some really nice mandolins, man. And, I, and one of the first things I know you you mentioned the octave mandolin, and I, I watched you play some videos. And and actually during COVID, I'm pretty sure I watched you do a um, like a live stream. Oh yeah, uh, maybe once or twice, possibly actually. And I was just like, man, such great stuff. But I, I want to ask how I just got an octave mandolin from Northfield here not too long ago. And yeah. how do you string yours? Great. Um, I, I've messed around with a couple different things over the years, but, uh, I'd say the vast majority of the time I have it strung, um, in, um, you know, regular mandolin tuning with, uh, uh, with split octaves on the, um, D and G string. Um, and I have, um, and I know some people do it differently, but I have the, um, skinnier of the two strings, um, above the fatter one in other words the skinnier one's closer to the ceiling yeah um i was just at mike compton's place and he showed me he's got a gilchrist octave and he had it strung the same way and he said he does it because he was he noticed he was not going through the uh the smaller string if sometimes or it wasn't resonating as well i think the bigger string would kind of uh act as interference or you know kind of prevent your pick from hitting the the skinnier one but if it was but yeah um, nice. And what brand is that? So, um, guy named Fletcher Brock, who's an amazing builder uh, out in Washington, uh, made this. And um, yeah, um, Sarah DeRose plays the exact same one. Um, and I, I think some other amazing people have have Fletcher's octave mainlines too. It's a you know guitar style um, um, arch top um yeah i love this thing it's it's been uh been a great instrument ever since i had it how long have you had it for uh that is a good question um, um I, i'm looking in the <laughs> so bad at numbers uh it's either a four or a nine 2004 he wow. made this thing sweet yeah yeah, yeah it's uh my baby yeah that's so cool man how about um what how about some of your other arsenal um i have a um well i have too many mandolins um uh but um i've been playing um michael hyden mandolins ever since i met him at a festival in uh british columbia um probably in the late eighties or really early nineties. Um, and, um, he made me a, uh, uh, an F style mandolin, um, back then, which is an incredible mandolin, which I played for many, many years. Um, it, it was one of his earlier ones and he was sort of worried that the top was too thin when he made it. And he was, even though it never showed any signs of, um, going awry he was he was worried that, that maybe at some point the top might um cave in a little bit and uh he, he he felt like he was making um you know had kind of refined his formula a little bit better and wanted to get me something more current um so i i have one of his mandolins that's got a um uh he, he found this really amazing old uh 
red spruce came, I think, from a barn uh, somewhere. Like the wood was already really old when he got it. Uh, and he built this batch of, of or still builds these mailings he calls the Heritage um, series with, with this old red spruce. Um, so that's sort of been my, my main axe um, for, you know, 10 years or so. Um, and it, it seems like it just gets better and better. Um, and um, I have also uh, recently acquired uh, a Gilchrist, uh, which is pretty uh, amazing thing to have uh, lying around. Um, <laughs> it, it's... Uh, it's new and um it's uh we're still kind of getting to know each other um it's it feels like um i don't know it's like when you meet a new friend you can tell you like them right away but they might not know uh that much about you and you might not know what jokes they're gonna laugh at or whatever <laughs> there's like you know you kind of tiptoeing right. around each other a little bit even though you can tell you're yeah gonna be compatible uh and that's that's a little bit the way um this seems i mean it's literally only been uh a couple of weeks um so um but it's cool it's 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 changing um you know as we speak and and super um you know easy to play and, and impeccable um so i it, you know i total first world problem but i i <laughs> I love having uh, more than one great mandolin lying around. Um, oh man, for sure. Yeah, and I, I also have a um, a Lawrence Smart uh, mandola. Oh, nice! It's a killer, killer instrument. And uh, uh, Lawrence is a, is a good friend of mine who also lives here in Idaho. And uh, somehow he he seems like he cracked the code on on uh, mandolas. Um, uh, it's um, you know, it's an instrument that I don't play all the time, um, but when I do, it's it's like the right thing for the job. And um, um, yeah, somehow um, I don't know. The, like the list of people who play Lawrence's mandolas are like um, Feely and Joe Walsh and Mike Marshall and John Reichman, and you know. Um, yeah, there's there's a reason why they uh, <laughs> those guys play them. Yeah, yeah. he yeah, uh, that's so cool. It's a it's a really great sounding instrument. Um, yeah, there's, there's other ones in the closet. Um, you know, some crappy ones that I made and, and, uh, <laughs> do you still have that first one that you built? I do. Yeah. Oh, I do. Cool, man. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I remember when I was in college, I, I went, uh, the Grisman, uh, quintet gave a, gave a concert and, uh, there was a little party afterwards and I, I brought my mandolin. I thought it'd be cool to show it off. And both he and Mike Marshall played it and they were like, you know, strummed it and handed it to the other guy and he strummed it and handed it back. And <laughs> I don't think I can play it with this neck on. Uh, but I, I realized that I needed to uh, try to shave the neck down. And it was, um, it was, it was a budget operation building that thing. I, for a truss rod, I used a, um, a file, um, oh really? Uh, just a, a metal file on edge, which you know I think some <laughs> people used to do that because they're super stiff. But um, uh, when I I went to shave the neck down, um, I didn't realize how close the file was to the uh, 
oh. to the back, back of their neck. And, uh, <laughs> I, oh, uh, no. <laughs> I was scraping away with something. I can't remember what was whether I was using a, a rasp or sandpaper or whatever. And all of a sudden, this black line appears. It's like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I can't put wood back. And right. I, can't, <laughs> I can't remove the file either. So I, I think I found some like wood colored paint and, uh, yeah, <laughs> it was just pretty, pretty ghetto repairs. Oh, that's great, man. <laughs> now, now that I think about it, that might be the time I realized that, uh, um, I should just become friends with really good luthiers and, and <laughs> there you go. Let, let them build them. I'd, I'd work on trying to figure out how to play them. Um, well, man, I got two more questions for you. And uh, the first one is, and this is, I think this will be a good one to hear from you because of, of your teaching background and, and, and so much of your knowledge with that stuff goes. But if somebody only had 10 minutes a day to play mandolin and they wanted to work on something, what is something that you would recommend that they work on? Hmm. That, that's a good one. Um, well, this may sound kind of esoteric, but, um, a thing that I try to do is, um, try to, when you're playing the mandolin, you're, uh, picking with your right hand and doing this complicated stuff with your left hand. Um, I don't know, really know if this is true, but supposedly you're, right brain controls your left hand and your left brain controls your right hand. Uh, but that's kind of neither here nor there. But what <laughs> I try to do is um, try to divert like maybe 20% of my mental, mental energy towards my right hand instead of my left hand. Um, try to think more about what I'm doing with my right hand than my left hand. You tend to, when you play, you tend to most of us tend to stare at our left hand even though we probably don't need to um but um it, and there's just this assumption that when you're doing something complicated it's um it's because your left hand is doing these you know making these gymnastic moves on the fretboard <laughs> right but a lot of times i've discovered um when i'm trying to pull off something and it's not sounding good. I assume that it's because it's a difficult maneuver on the left hand. But I think a lot of times what happens is you're um, concentrating so hard on your left hand that you're kind of losing some focus on your right hand. And I'm surprised at the number of times when I can make something sound better just by thinking a little bit harder about um, addressing the picking with my right hand. It, you're, you're flubbing a little move with your pinky on your left hand and assuming it's because your pinky's weak and it's a long reach, but it's really because you maybe didn't uh, execute your, your right hand picking as well. So, so I don't know if that makes sense, but- um, Totally, man. I swear, every time I find I'm screwing something up, it's it's pick direction. Almost always, it feels like I'm like, why yeah. am I goofing this up? And I'm like, oh, it's because I'm doing two downstrokes here without yeah. thinking. And it might not even be as simple as as just a wrong pick direction, but just like um, a wimpy up upstroke, or uh, or just not really 
addressing the pick um, with as much confidence as you should be. Um, so, so the exercise is really just do what you are doing and know how to do, but do it while thinking a little bit more about your uh, your right hand. And I, I don't know, I, I sort of in my mind, I, I imagine this uh, dial with a needle, and you're just trying to like push the needle a little bit further to the right. Um, and, uh, and and it's amazingly hard to do. Like I'll uh, I'll think about that sometimes at a gig, and I'll, I'll be like, okay, I'm going to see if I can. I mean, it's funny. I mean, I'm sure you can relate to this when you're playing a gig, the kinds of places your mind can wander. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> you're about to sing, you know, a verse and you find yourself thinking about what you're going to order for dinner on the break or, <laughs> right. uh, um, <clears throat> but anyway, I, I sometimes I'll, I'll go to a gig and say, I, I can see if I can make it through three songs and, and, uh, really focus on, you know, nailing my right hand. And, and, uh, yeah, I'm lucky if I can get through half of one song before I get distracted. But anyway, that's, that's the challenge. Yeah. I love it, man. That's a great one. And then the, the last question is if you have a favorite beer. Ooh, that is a, that is a, that's an even harder question. Uh, <laughs> I, um, I guess I'm guilty of not being loyal, uh, to one particular beer. Uh, I've got, um, I've got a lot of family history back in Vermont and there's an incredible craft beer scene. Well, I mean, boy, this day and age, there's craft, incredible craft beer scene everywhere, but, um, there's, there's, uh, three beers back there that I did come to mind. One, one's from a company called Lawson's. Uh, they make one called sip of sunshine. There's another really famous, super strong one called the heady topper. And, uh, and there's another, um, brewery in the town where my family has land in Greensboro, Vermont called the Hillstead Farms and people, you know, drive up from Rhode Island to get their, their growlers filled. That's such a, such a popular beer. So those are, those are ones that, you know, jump to mind, but I'm also, uh, you know, admittedly on a hot summer day in the, in my fishing boat, you know, content with a, uh, good light Mexican beer or a PBR. <laughs> yeah, buddy. I'll tell you, I, I, I love also, I mean, I love going to breweries and trying all sorts of different beers, but you know, the, the old standby for gigs is Coors Lights. Cause you get one, one too strong of an IPA in the, in, in, in the three hour set and <laughs> things, things can go sideways. I can always count on good old Coors Light to, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. know, yeah. know what to expect. <laughs> you want to sustain your, your drinking through a, <laughs> yeah. yeah, man, Ben, this has been a uh, real pleasure talking to you, talking to you today. Uh, this is great, man. I'm so glad that we got to do this. Uh, um, people can find you. It's benwinship.com. That's the best they way to sure find can. you. Yeah. Yeah. And do you, do you do online lessons? You know, I, I rarely, but, uh -huh. but, um, um, I'm certainly open to it. I, I haven't done a ton of late. Sure. Um, well, but, you never um, know, man. Somebody might listen to this and be like, Hey, yeah, this guy sounds I'm, 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 I'm open for business. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, thanks for having me, Daniel. And, and, uh, uh anytime. Thank you. Hope we get to cross paths and, and share a tune someday. I truly hope so, man. Once uh once it's safe to travel, I really uh got I'd love to do a bunch just to to play all these cities where everybody's located and try to do you know 
even like little gigs at breweries with people who live in, you know, in, in Idaho, yeah. <laughs> you know, or yeah. wherever. So that'd be really fun, I, I think. Mandolins and beer live. I like the idea. Exactly. We'll make it happen, man. Yeah. Well, um, also, just lastly, I mean, I love what you're doing to unite the, the Mando community. And oh, um, thank you. It, it's really it's been cool for me to hear uh, a bunch of my friends on your podcast and, and get turned on to new players and um, hear everyone's advice on, on beer and uh, <laughs> technique. And, yeah, it's, a, it's a cool thing that you're doing. Oh, thank you, man. Well, I'll tell you, if it wasn't for people like yourself and everybody else who does this podcast, it, you know, it wouldn't be possible. So I, I really appreciate the fact of everybody doing it like yourself. So thank you. All right. All right, Ben. Thank you. So long. All right, thanks so much to Ben. Be sure to head to his website right now and get the digital download-only release. It's $7.50 for 11 tunes. It's called Mandolin Tales. So there you go. Have a great weekend and cheers, everybody.